From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we're joined by New Orleans singer-songwriter P.J. Morton. He's a member of the pop group Maroon 5, but his solo work is indie soul brilliance. You got it, nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. And we will review the inescapable album of the summer, the cultural zeitgeist moment <laughs> that is Drake. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we have a great in-studio performance from New Orleans-based soul singer P.J. Morton. But, Greg, first, we have to deal with Drake. He is inescapable. He is ubiquitous. This Hmm. is the album of the summer. Whether you think you want to hear it or you don't, you're (laughs) going to hear it. What do we think at Sound Opinions of Drake's Scorpion? Kiki, do you love me? Are you riding? Say you never, ever leave from beside me. Greg, we have got to talk about Aubrey Drake Graham. His fifth proper album, depends on how you count, there were mixtapes, is called Scorpion. It is breaking every record that exists in the music industry to break at the moment. 170 million streams on day one on Apple Music, 132 million streams on day one on Spotify. Billboard was sort of conflicted about Mm. about is Drake therefore the biggest rapper of all time? Since the sale of measurable physical product has uh, disappeared, Uh, it's a thing of history now, how do you measure how much an artist is being heard? Streams, obviously, are one way. I looked up what the physical product album sales for Drake were. So far, it's 160,000 copies. That's absurd to me. You and I, when we were covering the last big heyday of the physical music industry, CDs, Eminem, Britney Spears, NSYNC, they were selling 8 million copies a week, you know, and and Drake is at 161,000. It is uh, inescapable. Is it worth that attention? I guess that's the question we want to tackle on Sound Opinions. I really enjoyed Drake's first album, So Did You, when we reviewed Thank Me Later, when he first burst out of the 406. Toronto native uh, was already a star, but for, for television. He was Jimmy on Degrassi, The Next Generation. And then he turns to hip-hop in a big way. You know, my take, Greg, is that after Thank Me Later, which I really enjoyed, there's been a sharp drop-off in his work. He's kind of given us the same thing over and over again. The adjectives <laughs> repeated mm. by all of our critical sisters and brothers again and again, self-obsessed, solipsistic, boastful, aggrieved. He's the champion of self-pity. All right, this is an incredibly ambitious record, 25 tracks, 90 minutes, 32 producers had some role uh, uh, on this record. Um, I happen to think it is his strongest record since Thank Me Later. But with qualifications, I also think it's too damn long. Mm. I think it should be only a third of what it is. 
he positioned it as half of an R&B pop album, that's the second half, and half of a rap album. Half, uh, that first half, uh, him taking on some of the people who have aggrieved him. And, you know, just one look at the song titles. There's always people who've made Drake feel aggrieved. Can't take a joke. I'm upset. Jaded. All right? Serving up a pack. Serving up a pack. Pulling gimmicks because they scared of rap. Funny how they shook. They got me shook. Pulling back the curtain by myself. Take a look. This kind of part of his shtick, uh, half of it is about the men who've made him angry or who put him down. The second half about the women. I think the key track is called Is There More? You made me think a couple of weeks ago, bringing up Peggy Lee's 1969 hit, Is That All There Is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and it's the great existential question pop song of all time. <laughs> Drake, at his best, asks those existential questions. Is that all there is? I am rich. I am famous. Uh, am I loved? Is that all there is? Is there more to life than digits and banking accounts? Is there more to life than saying I figured it out? Is there more? Yeah. At his worst, he kind of flips it and says, this is all I got, you know. But he ends the record, the last words on this incredibly long record, 25 tracks, 90 minutes, I'm changing from a boy to a man. I'm alone, no one to cry on. I need shelter. What does that mean? He's 31. He just had a child that right. he only confessed having because Pusha T in one of those, you know, modern day hip hop beefs. He's feuding with Kanye. He's feuding with Pusha. Pusha outed him as being a dad and not having a child he lived up to. Uh, now he does, which is pretty brave. He is now, according to Billboard, uh, right on that list with Kanye West, Kenny Chesney, Madonna, U2 and Eminem as one of the biggest selling artists of all time. So any personal conf confession is brave. You know, I just always wish he had a little more. There is a great third of an album in here. Well, I think it's a, I, I actually think there's something to, the fact that this man is so successful indicates to me that he's connecting with a lot of people out there. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons is that he's been able to do that. Uh, He's so big on social media. He, he's an Instagram king. Uh, so he's and he's able to sort of communicate in a way that that Instagram un crowd understands. He's speaking to them on Instagram, and he's basically reflecting their lives back at them. These sort of rituals of hustling, being a player, you know, going out there and hooking up with a partner, a lover, th th those those sorts of uh, games that are being played on social media. He's basically expanding that here on the social media. Don't link me. Don't hit me when you hear this and tell me your favorite song. Don't tell me how you knew it would be like this all along. I know the truth is you won't love me until I'm gone. And even then the thing that comes after is moving on. I can't even The thing that I think is missing from Drake and why I was I found him so appealing up through Take Care is 2011 album, The Vulnerability. Uh, he was willing, I, I think he was a fresh voice in hip hop for a number of years, for his for actually the first three records, where he was talking about 
the fact that I'm a flawed person. I'm having a real problem dealing with the fact that I'm becoming this hip-hop star, and, I, and I'm not doing really well at it. He was, he was admitting that he was flawed. I think what I'm seeing from Drake, especially on Views, his 2016 record, and now this one, is a more guarded uh, Drake, less willing to come out and discuss the fact that, yes, I am weak, I am vulnerable. We see it emerging in that March 14 track where he's talking about what it means to be a, a, a father and this, this whole notion of becoming a yeah. man uh, from a boy. And I'd love to see more of that. That said, the production on this album is incredible. There's an incredible array of hooks on this record. is turned into a pop machine. I mean, you know, you talk about all the singles he has on the charts, you know, that that he's dominating the top ten. Every one of those songs has a hook in it. Uh, There are a few duds. Uh, The consensus dud on this record is I'm Upset. I'm upset. 50,000 on my head is disrespect. So offended that I had to double check. I'ma always take the money over... That's why they need me out the way what you expect. It reminds me of the Dave Matthews phenomenon in the 90s when, when every, a point of commonality among white American youth in the 90s was Dave Matthews. I got to see a you Matthews gotta, show. You got to because my friends are all going. Right. And I think with Drake, it's that sort of thing. And you could say, okay, lemmings, you know, they're just following, following the leader, so to speak. But there is something about the music that is connecting those people, and that is a powerful thing, and it should not be dismissed. One thing I admire about this guy is he, he's remained loyal uh, to these guys he started with, Noah Forty, Shabib, and uh, now Boy yeah. Wanda. A great They've producer. They've created the sounds. Yeah. These guys have created sounds around this guy, and they built an industry around that Drake sound. He's got a he's got one of those most recognizable voices in in hip hop history. But the production around him is equally uh, is equally smart and equally distinctive. And as you said, he's expanding out and, and and starting touching on all these genres. You know, whether it's trap or New Orleans bounce. You know, he's 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 giving you a flavor of each of those things. So well, there's so, a certain, so what we, what there's we, a certain we, wallpaper quality about it. But then, then at his best, there is something. So what we thought we would do for our listeners. All right. You want to understand Drake. You know you should understand Drake, but you don't want to deal with 90 minutes, 25 tracks, 32 producers of Drake. Nice for what? Everybody get your roll on. I know shorty and she doesn't want no slow song. Had a man last year, life goes on. Haven't let the thing lose, girl, it's so long. You been inside, know you like to lay low. I've been people what you bring to the table. Working hard, girl, everything paid for. First, last phone, bill, car, no cable. For me, that song, Nice For What, we both agree. Nice For What is a standout track, and he does it with a really interesting sample. Yes, he does. He's uh, actually he's used a, a number of name artists here to uh, to uh, duet with. In the case of yeah. Michael Jackson on "Don't Matter to Me," and Mariah Carey is the central uh, voice in "Emotionless," a, a, a you know a, a sample of her uh, music. And 
sampling Lauryn Hill on Nice For What. Uh, Lauryn Hill, her debut album, which, by the way, very timely, 20th anniversary of the miseducation of Lauryn Hill, her solo debut. She's never really done a proper follow-up to it. Now no. she's, uh, she's doing a 20th anniversary tour where she's going around performing the album from start to finish. An important album, an important album for a, ge- for a couple of generations mm-hmm. of young people who, uh, who uh, grew up in that era and are now coming of age and making their own music, as in, the, as in Drake's case. The Lauryn Hill song that's being sampled for Nice For What is X Factor from that record. Nice for what is it's an interesting song because it's got that New Orleans feel to it. He's got he's got the big timers, he's interpolating lyrics from the big timers, that New Orleans duo on it. He's got Lauren Hill from the X Factor, this emancipation song. I'm mm-hmm. breaking free, I'm doing my own thing. The X in X Factor is Wycliffe Jean. Yeah. She's breaking away from the Fugees. She's creating her own thing. This is a very powerful statement of a woman going out on her own. And here I think very appropriately uh, in Nice For What is that Drake has written a shout out to a working woman yes. saying, you're making your own bread. You're making it on your own. You don't need any help. You know, you're a powerful person in your own right. So it's a kind of a appropriate use of the sample. Uh, you know, what I loved about the uh, X Factor song is the way uh, some of the production, the drums on that song are really innovative. She's using some marching drums on there as well as the typical hip hop drums. And it's a very powerful track. But what he's looking for is that is that hook from uh, Lauren Hill, X Factor. You said you'd care for me. And it's basically this woman co- going out into the world and saying, you know, I thought I thought you had my back. You don't. I'm on my own. I'm going to do it on my own. And that's that, that's the point of the song. And I think it, it, that's one of the reasons it's resonating with people. Well, it's interesting because this is from the woman side, half of Scorpion. And it is an anthem of female empowerment. He's throwing curves in there. Big Frida from mm, New yeah, Orleans right. is, is on there. It's New Orleans inspired in the same way that the city of New Orleans was struck down hard and is rising up. I mean, it's working on many levels that say, Drake, when you're not just sitting on the couch feeling sorry for yourself, you really got the goods. Yeah, right. Exactly. Let's play a little bit more of Drake's Nice For What, which is sampling Lauryn Hill's X Factor on Sound of Peace. That's a real one in your reflection, without a follow, without a mention. You really piping up on these, you gotta be nice for what to these, I understand. You got a hundred bands, you got a baby bands, you got some bad friends. High school pics, you was even bad then. You ain't stressing off no lover in the past tense, you already had them. Work at 8 a.m., finish round five. Call down, you don't see them outside. Yeah, they don't really be the same offline. You know dog days, you know hard times. Doing overtime for the last month. Saturday, call the girls, get them gassed up. Gotta hit the club, gotta make that jump. Gotta hit the club like you hit them, hit them, hit them angles. With your phone out, snapping like you Fable. And you're showing off, but it's alright. And you're showing off, but it's alright. It's a short life. We always say on Sound Opinions, everyone is a critic. So what are your thoughts on Scorpion by Drake? Is it worth the attention or is it overhyped? Is it somewhere in between? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. 
Coming up, a conversation and a performance from soul artist P.J. Morton. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. You know, some people never change their minds. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're hearing a little bit of our guest this week, New Orleans indie soul singer-songwriter P.J. Morton. P.J.'s perhaps better known as the keyboardist in Maroon 5, but his solo work is in a completely different vein. He blends New Orleans gospel roots with strains of Stevie Wonder and other soul artists. In 2017, P.J. was nominated for two Grammys, one for the best R&B song and one for the best R&B album for his record Gumbo. PJ joined us recently in the Bill and K Maybe Performance Studio, and I started our conversation by asking about how his upbringing in New Orleans helped to shape him artistically. Yeah, well, I grew up a pe- preacher's kid, mm-hmm. um, son of a son of a pastor, and uh, really musical family. My my dad is an amazing singer. You changed my life completely. And um, so in church is where I really got my my training. That's where I cut my teeth. And my dad always had great musicians because he was a singer. He always surrounded himself with like the best of the best, you know. Yeah. Uh, So it was just good training ground for me and um, got me got me started. Well, you're sitting at the piano, PJ, uh, and you're going to play some, what, some songs from the last album for us? or what? Sure, are you yeah, yeah, I'll play some songs from this album, Gumbo. And, cool. Uh, yeah. Hey, how, since we were talking re- with about religion, mm-hmm. would you play religion at some point? Sure. Cause it's I'll play it right now if you want. All right, because mm-hmm. the way you were saying that, uh, obviously, uh, you're a person of faith, <clears throat> and, and it resonates to your core, but this is a song that's talking out about the way People are abusing that now. Sure, yeah. As I I hear it. I think religion in all forms always start as a good intention thing. Sure. And then humanity gets in there, and there are ways where, you know, humans make mistakes and are tempted by power and tempted by these things and, and, and then start to use religion for personal gain. Yeah, and, and to justify and, yeah. actions that hurt other people. Exactly, exactly, uh, yeah. Deep. Yeah. So that's why I wrote that, yeah. And uh, I'll do that right now. Then. All, right. Like? All right, thank you. Uh, I don't think I like your religion Don't always make the best decisions Yeah, yeah not saying you don't have good intentions I know that you are only human yeah but you blame your God when it's your own fault where is the love that your God spoke of your God had nothing to do with that Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's what you were told, let's just be honest. You didn't even take the time to find it yourself. You just took their words to be true. But you blame your God when it's your own fault. Where is the love that your God spoke of? Maybe your God had nothing to do with that, yeah. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Religion from P.J. Morton on sound opinions. Uh, P.J., the, the question, uh, religious household, mm-hmm. what does Baptist pastor Paul S. Morton think of that song? Um, you know, we hadn't actually talked about it. But my, <laughs> my father is uh, one of my biggest supporters, you know. My mom's a pastor as well, and um, she asked me to sing it in church, so she approves. I was inspired to write that actually during the presidential campaign, and I was surprised by a lot of uh, white evangelicals really standing behind um, a lot of divisive language and, and banter and using God as a as, to justify that, and that really struck me. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know if the God you say you believe in would, would totally approve. Uh, what what artist made the biggest impression on you as a kid growing up? Um, well, initially it was gospel artists. So it was uh, you know the Winans and Commission and the Clark Sisters. And then Stevie Wonder, I got a hold of Stevie, and then it kind of paused everything for a minute when I was about 12. It's all I could listen to. Um, and then I started to get into the others again, like Donny Hathaway and uh, Al Green, uh, Prince and Michael Jackson. Those were huge for me. And the Beatles, James Taylor. So so you're the age that Stevie was when he started making music, more or less, yeah. when you discovered. When what I was it about him. that voice? Yeah, it's um. So I knew, you know, I'm an '80s baby, so I knew like I just called to say I love you. I knew those records; they were on the radio and stuff. But someone gave me a cassette tape that had "I'd Never Dream You'd Leave in Summer," mm-hmm. and that I hadn't heard that Stevie. I never dreamed you'd leave in summer. It was just like, it did something to mm. me, 
immediately and I went I went down a rabbit hole. There was a Circuit City by my house <laughs> and uh, my dad would give me an allowance weekly and I would take that allowance and get, I went in chronic, chronological order of Stevie Records, the earliest I could find it. I would get a new one every week mm. and just went down that, you know, uh, down that hole and just, you know, changed my life really. So easy now with everything on your phone. I know, right? right? Yeah, but, I had to go to the store every week. Something about <laughs> that trick to the record store and it's decide true, yeah. which one you were going to buy of what yeah, was yeah. in the bin. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was very, uh, you know, you had to had to be uh, make your point to do that. You know yeah, what I mean? As opposed yeah. to now, you can kind of be passive in that. Yeah. This was like deliberate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you grew up in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, you were around 20 when you left. Right. Mm -hmm. to, uh, high school. Uh, when I graduated, I went to Atlanta and, uh -huh. and uh, went to Morehouse College. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you've been associated with some artists that, uh, you know, have tried to write really substantial songs that uh, could potentially change the world. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. thinking of India Ari. She had sure. a great start to her career. Absolutely. And people have forgotten how, how terrific uh, those initial few albums that she did were. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and it toured with Erica Badu as well, who's still an amazing artist, transformative artist, I think, in many ways. Yes. Um, how did you end up working with artists of that caliber? Yeah, well, India gave me my start in, like, mainstream music. And it really was a right place, right time thing. Her first record hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. And I moved off campus and lived in this apartment complex. She was living there. There was a piano in the lobby. I was playing the piano. She heard me playing and was like, oh, yeah, I sing. And we started talking about Stevie Wonder. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, yeah, you sing, you know. So my yeah. friend was yeah, down everybody there. Everybody sings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, fine, okay. Uh, <laughs> we started talking about Stevie Wonder, and she sang Ribbon in the Sky. And I was like, oh, you, you really sing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, you sing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that first record was done. It hadn't come out yet. And uh, we just became friends. And uh, so when her next record came around, I was like, Andy, I have a song. Recorded it. It was my first um, placement on a major label album, you know. And uh, that it happened that quick. There's a new girl in town. Come to turn it around. I hope that you are down. Because I'm interested. Can I be an First album, she was nominated for like seven Grammys. Right, yeah. Same year as Alicia Keys, I think. Mm -hmm. And Alicia swept her. Yeah. And uh, but that next album that I was a part of, she was nominated for two and, and won both of them. So it was crazy to immediately jump into the industry and then be right, you know, in, the, in Grammy world and all of that. It was it was a lot. I didn't even know what was happening really. Um, Erica Badu, uh, her music director, right when I was graduating school. Um, was a friend of mine. His father was my father's best man, and um, he asked me if I wanted to come on tour. You know, I had to. I wanted to quit college probably about three or four times. <laughs> One was when that Grammy w happened. I was like, all right, yeah. what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> what am I wasting yeah. my time for? Yeah. Uh, but the other, I used to get all these tour, like, because I was a musician very early, so I would get all these, you know, tours thrown at me, and I was like, man, I got to finish school. Um, but uh, Badu came right when I was graduating, mm. and um, I went out, and that was amazing. My first tour, first time on a tour bus, first time missing church wow. on Sunday. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, because yeah. Alan Toussaint was sitting literally like, right piano. where you are right wow. now, 
a few years ago. Big and man. he got those huge gigs early on in his life where he just got thrown into the deep end right away. Yeah. Like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna sit in on piano because this guy couldn't make the gig, so you're in. Yeah. How do you prepare for that moment when they tap you on the shoulder and say, yeah. You're the guy? Yeah, you know, to be honest, church, especially the way I we did church, my father, before Katrina had twenty thousand members, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so I was playing in front of a, a lot of people and things can change really quickly in church. Like my dad can bring a song that I don't know out in yeah. the middle. It, it is like the most nerve wracking uh, and it prepares you for anything, I think. Even with Maroon 5, we've had stuff where uh, something will go wrong and I'm just like, cool, because I've been through these crazy <laughs> situations, played totally by ear, you know, and um, nobody taught me. And I was with Maroon, in Brazil at Rock and Rio, and it was 120,000 people, and I saw my reflection in one of these right here, you know, where you can see yourself. The glass I'm wall, like, yeah. I'm like, how did I even, how did I what get here exactly? Here? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't I don't yeah. remember how I was able to, mm-hmm. you know, because even the maroon thing is, it, it was also one of those things that just happened, you yeah. know? Yeah, you and me and all that wine, loosen my tie, lie down this fly. Every guy that PJ, you mentioned Maroon 5. Uh, you've been a full-time member of that group since 2012. Tell us how you hooked up with Maroon 5. Yeah, well, uh, so Maroon 5 was um, on their third record, Hands All Over. Um, we're, they were looking for another keyboard player slash singer. They need, they need a Billy Preston. Yeah. They, Come yeah. in and be the fifth yeah, Mar- or a, the sixth Yeah, Maroon exactly, yeah. exactly. But unbeknownst to me, it was actually to be the fifth because the original keyboard player uh, was yeah. planning to leave, and I yeah. didn't know that at that time. They all knew. I wasn't in yeah. on that. Um, but he was. we were together for two years before he took a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. The rest was history. We just more vibed on a personal level. Mm-hmm. I was just straight in there. We we um, my first gig was a full live show, live on Fuse. I, I'm just that's kind of been the story of my life, you know, just being prepared for was was thrown. Well, I, I want to talk about one other collaboration, and I want to hear about Gumbo. Okay. Uh, but you, you got to play us another song first. I put you on the spot before. You yeah. play what? Play us PJ. Anything you play us is gonna mm-hmm. make us happy. All right, cool. All right, all right. Uh, let me do. Well, this I'm gonna do a cover uh, that's on Gumbo, actually. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite songs of all times by the Bee Gees. And uh, I know where you're going. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, like I always heard. It always felt soulful to me, but I'm like. I think I can take it a step further in the soul. Well, you yeah. are talking about three white Australians. You know I know, what man. I mean? It's, it's something like, about those Aussies, man. No, they got they got something they got something going. Yeah, maybe you you're, <laughs> you're talking to two rock critics. Yeah, you know? we yeah. fight our whole life. We we have wrestled over the Bee Gees yeah. more than anybody, maybe than Bruce Springsteen. Sure, I'm anti. Sure. He's pro. Okay, yeah. okay. I, I don't, I, yeah. Your version, yes. Yeah, There's thank you, I man. ain't going there. Mm. All right, well, listen. Uh, they gave me the, the groundwork for this. There you so, go. Uh, let me do this here. I know your eyes in the morning sun. I feel you touch me in the rain. And the moment 
that you're wonderful from me. I want to feel you in my arms again. And you come to me on a summer breeze. Keep me warm in your love. Then you're softly And it's me you need to show how deep is your love. Is your love how deep is your love? I really mean to learn. Breaking us down when they all should let us be. We belong to you and me. I believe in you. You know the door to my very soul. You're the light in my deepest, darkest hour. You're my savior when I fall. You may not think that I care for you When you know deep down inside I really do And it's me you need to show How deep is your love? Is your love how deep is your love? I really mean to learn Cause we're living in a world of fools, yeah Breaking us down when they all should let us be. We belong to you and me. <laughs> that is a cool cover. <laughs> Thank you. Of the Bee Gees, How Deep Is Your Love by our guest, PJ Morton, on Sound Opinions. PJ, thanks for. Uh, Thanks for funking up the Bee Gees, <laughs> the Bee Gees which yeah. I didn't think was possible, but uh, I think you just did that Amen. in a very soulful way. Ah, thank you, thank you. Um, so that is uh, one of the highlight tracks from your uh, most recent album, Gumbo. Yeah. Um, I want to go back one album before that when you signed with Lil Wayne's Young Money Entertainment. <laughs> yes, uh, who'd have thunk it? And here you are, the California boy now. You've been out there for X amount, of, decade plus, and, but you title that album... New Orleans, yeah. and I can't help but feel there was a little homesickness going on there. I or guess so. I think before I even realized it, uh, like I said, I've always worn New Orleans as a badge of honor. If you know, it's almost like you don't let out family businesses. You know, it's like I knew I knew that I, I needed a break from New Orleans, but I'm not letting everybody else know that. You know, I'm mm -hmm. proud. Um, but I think now that I look back, I think it was the seed of uh, of homesickness happening there. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though I made that album in California, I named it New Orleans because I think I was in search for that thing that made me fall in love with music and that freedom. New Orleans, there's such a creative freedom of like, do whatever you want to do, man. As long as it sounds good, I don't care. As a as opposed to LA where it's like, mm. what's the next smash? Like, what's, where's this hit? What's the next hit? Da, 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 da. Um, so I think I was trying to get back to that, and that's what that that's what that album was about. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because um, you know I'm looking at that song "Claustrophobic" on the last on Combo, sure, uh, where you talk about exactly what you just said. Yeah. Would you consider us changing some stuff? Oh, like everything about who you are. Uh, no offense, we're just trying to make you up. 
stung, but I must admit, I'm claustrophobic. I have a hard time trying. And it sounded like there was a period of transition, like the industry wanted a PJ Morton that was going to do X, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, I'm Y. This is yeah. what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so what was the period like between uh, putting out uh, New Orleans on a fairly high-profile label mm -hmm. and then going to the point where you're an indie artist now with your own label putting out your own record? We all wanted X at one point, mm. where it's like I, I, I was chasing a hit like anybody else, but I think... Maroon 5 satisfied a lot of that inside of me, you know. I always wanted to, on my bucket list, I wanted to play SNL, you know. I did it three times. I wanted to play the Grammys. Did it multiple times. Five number one hits in a row, you know. So all that stuff that I wanted as a kid, like success in music, I got it. So it made me go in internal when it came to my solo stuff. It's like, okay, well, I don't need to chase that anymore. So let me you know, really figure out what, what music I want to make and why. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but the flip side of that is then all the success started to happen with Gumbo, the record where I didn't think strategically at all, mm -hmm. then the Grammy nominations, and then, the, <laughs> then you know what I mean? The, yeah. the, the, the streams that I have, like this is the most successful record I've had. And to know that it, all I had to do was be myself is like, oh yeah. man. Well, for lack of a better word, um, you're a soul artist, um, mm -hmm. and obviously that's not like, uh, it's not even a category anymore on the radio. It's like you're an urban artist or, you know, hip hop or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you quote the label executive in, in Claustrophobic saying, you know, you're not mainstream enough. Yeah. Uh, what was that, you know? Uh, a code for what do you think what did they want you to be they, that you weren't willing to become at that point they wanted me to like I remember one specific thing was uh, wanting me to work with this producer that was hot on the radio at the time mm -hmm. but stylistically was so far away from anything I'd ever do um, but that's what mainstream was code for it's like let me let me give you these drums I mean I can actually say it um at that time, a guy was like, you ever you ever consider DJ Mustard? I'm like, um, I like DJ Mustard's records, but how do you think me and DJ Mustard mix, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, they don't care either. Like they, they just want to hit. Even friends of mine, like PJ, just let me give you this hit sounding song, you know, that can go next to this other urban record. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't care to do that, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and if I do one day, then cool, you know. But I, I gotta get, be able to sleep at night and know that <laughs> that's authentically me. After a short break, we'll hear more from New Orleans-based indie soul artist P.J. Morton. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner Jim DeRogatis, and we've been talking to indie soul artist P.J. Morton. In addition to his critically acclaimed solo work and his work as a member of Maroon 5, 
His recent work as a music director for Solange Knowles has brought him a lot of attention. I continued our conversation by asking him about what it's like to work with Solange. I'm a rebel. <laughs> Solange... <laughs> Solange is the the king of rebels. Yeah, she, <laughs> like, well, she punched Jay Z. Yeah, yeah, I'd say <laughs> literally. I mean, that's a physical that's a physical representation yeah. of who she is. Which is, man, I mean, it's so inspiring to be around her because she literally doesn't care what people think. Mm-hmm. Literally, you know. And if she does, she snaps out of it in an hour, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually didn't work on that record, um, but when she wanted to go on the road. I helped her put the band together. She wanted okay. a heavily uh, New Orleans-based uh, band, so I did auditions. And um, and a lot of it, we called it co-music director because she had a lot of the vision already. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I made it make sense to the musicians and communicated her thoughts and helped with some arrangements, helped with some transitions. And, um, you know, I, I, her SNL performance I'm still super proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was music director for that and... Um, we did a Super Bowl performance, and we also did a, a Fallon performance. Solange. to watch it at Essence Fest, you know, proud, Mm. knowing that I put this thing together um, on the heels of this amazing record that she made, you know. That was a spectacularly ambitious show. Yeah, it was. I I think she played Chicago uh, Mm -hmm. at Pitchfork um, that year. And you, that, that was not your standard issue. No, not at all. R and B show yeah. or whatever no, you want to call it. Performance art, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was fun. I mean, that was fun. I had never experienced anybody who, who, who went that far in in the performance art, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a challenge for me, but a welcome challenge. You know, it was. Uh, I just had come home to New Orleans. She lives in New Orleans. Solange lives in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really just a, a good release. Um, to get my mind off of what I was doing and get to her. And that was right before I started to work on Gumbo. So it was kind of like it probably had something to do with the the spirit and the energy. Well, it's right know, there in the, the title, right? Gumbo. Yeah, yeah, Is exactly. it, everything goes in the pot. Exactly. And it all comes out as something tasting unique and good. Everybody's got a different gumbo, right? That's right. That's I mean, right. they take it seriously down oh, there. Oh, for sure. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious deal, man. Yeah. Yeah. City music everywhere. Yeah, you're growing up in a musical household, uh, and yet you left. And there, you know, I've been reading interviews with you, PJ, where you talked about the need, like you felt like you needed to venture out in order yeah. to advance your your aspirations uh, to to make music professionally. Yeah, because the the thing is, if if you're not a jazz musician in New Orleans, there is sort of a ceiling for you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like to get to another point in your career, you almost 
had to leave. There wasn't really infrastructure there. Everybody can play something and mm-hmm. everybody can sing, you know. So that um, I was always proud of. But as far as music business and me wanting to write songs and publishing and like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I had to leave. Did you feel like uh, you're almost doing like a, a a 360 here, coming back to the roots uh, with New Orleans and you, you suggesting that you left New Orleans because there was no infrastructure yeah. and here you are in back in New Orleans starting yeah. I went, your own label. Yeah, I went, I went back for the reason I left basically, mm-hmm. which is um to not, you know, because I think it's great to leave, period. Wherever you're from, it's, you know, it's cool to leave and see other things and learn other things. Uh, but I don't want it to be because they have to leave, you know. I want there to be some infrastructure there. And this amazing city who's known for the creation of jazz, you know, like the mm. spirit of innovation is still very much there. And I think um, it just needs to be, um, you know, catered to and really, you know, some people need to pay attention to it. Your dad's church was 20,000 members strong at its peak, and then Hurricane Katrina hit. How hard did that storm hit you and your family and the church? I mean, big time, man. It 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 it, uh, it separated people. Um, Is it back? So, I mean, it's very much back. Um, I don't think it'll ever be what it was in that way, you know, 25,000 members, because it was such a... Wow. My, my father was pastoring for 30 years there at yeah. that point. Uh, for better or for worse, really, I think it's a good thing, too. Like, you know, restarts are good. Let's you know? build it new yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So yeah. your label's part of that? Yeah, I mean, Morton Records is just part, I think, of the fabric of New Orleans now. I've been mm-hmm. back two and a half years, and uh, people know I'm back. You know, a lot of times people come back after their careers have slowed down. Right. I really want to be back, and mm-hmm. I really want to... Uh, help build the city and and do my part, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we are here with PJ Morton uh, on Sound Opinions. PJ, have you got another song you could play for us? I do. I have a few songs I could play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Let me do. Um, so you know, uh, Gumbo was nominated for two Grammys this year, and um, one was for Best R&B Album. But this, uh, the next one was for Best R&B Song. So I'm gonna do that one first. Begin. He goes. No one makes me feel the way you do inside And I don't know what I would do without you And that's no lie If I die I'd hope to find you in another So we could fall again Be the way we were when we first began Like the first time that I ever saw you smile I want that feeling again the way we were when we first began Yes, we've got something special Let's Oh, don't and don't let go Yeah Yeah And I'll never find another, another, another like you 
First began by yes, P.J. Yeah. Morton, live on Sound Opinions. Yeah, man, I love that. How, when you're writing a song like that, mm-hmm. how do you decide to do that thing where you go from the real gentle and then you kick it in? Yeah, like how does that, is that just like I got this hanging here and I got that hanging there? What happens if I put them together? Yeah, no, or that that had different a bunch of different lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it started off first, you know, um, straight into the beat. No one mm-hmm. makes them feel. And then I was like, I, I started to do it live. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. I went on the road and did it live and saw the response when I played it slow like that in the mm-hmm. beginning. And when we dropped into the beat, and I was like, guys, we got to go back in the studio and record it. <laughs> this is the, <laughs> way, to the way to do it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So many bands don't understand yeah. that by playing stuff in live performance, mm-hmm. you uh, come to an understanding of it that, that nothing else can do. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, th- th- this is the reason why... I did gumbo, then came back and did gumbo unplugged, right? Yeah. Because it's like, oh, that moves people, and you don't, you can't know that in the studio. Right. You're trusting your instinct, you know, and you do the best you can. But that instant gratification of, oh man, they responded to that. Mm-hmm. That you can't. It's nothing that compares to that. Yeah. yeah. And no better teacher than that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have been talking with uh, P.J. Morton, who's uh, regaled us with some beautiful tunes and some great conversation. P.J., thanks for coming in. Oh, man, thank you so much for having me. Been a, been a pleasure talking to you guys. Could have done this all day. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you do to me. Only you make my life complete. That wraps up our interview with P.J. Morton. Greg, what is on the show next week? Next week, Jim, an in-depth career overview with the one and only Alice Cooper. To us, it just made us matter and made us more irritable and made us work harder. I think other bands would rehearse two hours a day. We rehearsed nine hours a day. Mm. And eight hours was on the music and one was on the theatrics. So I think it made us work harder to get people to respect our playing ability. We had to overcome the visual thing. They all loved the show, but you know, a lot of the critics said, well, take the show away, and what are they? No more, Mr. Nice Guy. No more, Mr. Clean. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. They say, he's sick, he's a 
For more Sound Opinions, subscribe to our podcast, available wherever you download them. Special thanks this week to Colin Ashmead Bobbitt for engineering our PJ Morton performance. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banaszak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, Andrew Gill, and we have an intern, Hannah Edgar. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, uh, this is Allison from St. Louis. Um, I was just, I'm like a month behind, I was just listening to your Anxious Anthems episode uh, and wanted to talk for a sec about Transgender Dysphoria Blues by Against Me. I've been listening to that album for years, long before I knew I was transgender, but the title track really hits my specific anxieties about like how other people see me. You know, the, the really aggressive drums and the really, just everything is so aggressive. Um, it gets me. Uh, bye. Uh, yeah, I was listening to your show with Ari Nelber, who I watch quite a bit. Um, and you wanted an opinion on his rap reference. <laughs> I love Ari Nelber. I really do. But honestly, he just sounds like the dorkiest white guy when he does that. I am so embarrassed every time he does it. A wise man told me don't argue with fools because people from a distance can't tell who is who. Plead the fifth when it comes to the fam. I'm like a dog. I never speak, but I understand. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Nobody knows what he's referring to. I mean, I'm 55 years old, and I know what he's referring to. I, I mean, I get it, okay? But, yeah, it's... It's like the white guy that's at the party with all the black guys and says something really stupid. That's kind of what he looks like. Love you, Ari, though. I really do. I wish you'd stop doing that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Jim and Greg, my name's Brett. I'm calling from North Riverside, Illinois. I just heard the episode with Ari Melber from uh, MSNBC. Really, really interesting. And the guy sounds like encyclopedic in his knowledge of uh, rap lyrics. But I was thinking throughout that interview of uh, Hank Williams Jr.'s A Country Boy Can Survive. We came from the West Virginia coal mines and the Rocky Mountains and the Western skies. And we can skin a buck, we can run a trot line, and a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. I think if, if you were to study what Hank Williams Jr. is singing about is exactly the sort of posture that we see um, in the reactionary right today. Not that the guy should be quoting Hank Williams Jr., but I just wonder as, as music critics, I don't know, I, I thought there was maybe an opportunity there to say, how do you get at the other side? Certainly... This guy's quoting of hip-hop in obscure detail, as you note, is going to go over the head of a lot of the people 
listening and some of the people on the show, and it's going to resonate most with people who are already participating in the resistance. Anyway, thanks for your time. Always enjoy the show. You guys take care. Bye. Hey, guys. Sam here in Ridgeway, Colorado, calling about your uh, best of the year so far episode. Really enjoyed it. Had Sarah Shook on repeat since then. I'm listening a lot these days to Angelique Joe's reimagining of the 1980 classic by the Talking Heads Remain in Light. This album is both an homage to those really great Talking Heads songs of the early 80s, but also a comment on those songs by adding a certain amount of polyrhythmic complexity and by quoting Fela Kuti, Angelique Kijo reminds us that we're always evolving towards Africa. The album is a complete reimagining and rethinking of the album, and at the same time, same as it ever was. Thanks, guys. Take care. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. The same as it ever was.